If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about storytelling. We're talking about storytelling in games. How do you design a game where you tell a grand narrative where you have different plot points happening, different characters interacting, all sorts of cool things going on. You integrate those with some awesome mechanisms, whether it's through dice or cards or, or different things. And we're talking to a guy that, in my opinion, is is the best at doing this, who has created several of these games at this point. One of my favorite game designers, Mr. Jerry Hawthorne from Plat Hat Games. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Howdy, y'all. So glad to have you back here. It's been a while, man. I have several years ago you were on the show and we were talking about this very topic in a lot of ways. We we're talking about storytelling. But since then, you've had several more of these games come out. And and again, you were one of my favorite designers. You were one of the guys that actually got me into the hobby, whether you knew it or not. Many, many moons ago, one of the first hobby games I ever bought was Mice and Mystics. And that was maybe 20. 10, 2011, It was a while back. And that was one of the games that really drew me into this hobby. It got me into going, oh, okay, there's more to board games than Monopoly and Scrabble. There's actually uh, stories and there's there's these really cool mice miniatures and I'm chucking dice and I'm hitting cockroaches and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and that drew me in and that got me into Plat Hat games in general as a company. I started listening to your podcast, gotten, you know, get into the podcast game there. And then that's one of the things that led me into starting this podcast was listening to you guys. And so Jerry, you're, uh, I guess, some kind of godfather to all of this, whether you knew it or not. So I appreciate you, man. Appreciate you designing and putting out really cool content. I'm excited to just kind of chat about how do you do that? Cause you, you've done it so many times at this point, but before we get into all that good stuff, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. My name is Jerry Hawthorne. I'm 54 years old. I'm a husband and father of uh two great kids and a beautiful wife and i got into uh actually into board game design professionally i've been a, a you know board gamer my whole life uh board games and rpgs and stuff but uh i guess back in 2004 right around in there um my wife was pregnant with my son and um i just kind of got you know i i thought i'd just you know kind of recreate um the board games of my own youth and stuff. And so I started hunting around the internet and I just discovered HeroScape, which is um, designed by the same guy that uh, designed Hero Quest, which is one of my favorite games. And I just stumbled upon uh, HeroScape and uh, got in at the ground stages of that game and it fascinated me. And uh, next thing you know, I, I got brought on as a play tester for Hasbro and got to meet a bunch of professionals and 
they started uh, paying me to uh, develop content for HeroScape. And then that led me into designing my own game, which was uh, Mice and Mystics. So you got caught in my mousetrap, I think, uh, like <laughs> a lot of people. Uh, Mice and Mystics has turned out to be a sort of a gateway game. It kind of was my love letter to parenting and my love letter to to Hero Quest, one of my favorite old games. And uh, I did something a little bit differently with it. I, uh, you know, I made this adventure about these little mice and I added a bunch of story elements into it uh, that would break up the gameplay, and maybe help my daughter learn how to read. And that's sort of where I got my start. Very cool. And like I was saying in the intro, at this point, you've designed five of these games and, and Mice and Mystics, Stuffed Fables, uh, Comanauts, Aftermath, Familiar Tales, which is, is in pre-order right now. Familiar Tales looks just excellent. I'm really excited to uh, check that one out when when it actually arrives in uh, in around the world. And so you've been doing this while, and you've got all sorts of expansions as well. So you have tons and tons and tons of content and tons of things that I'm sure you have learned along the way because Familiar Tales is uh, you can see you can see the Mice and Mystics flavor in there, but it's a very different game. You're doing very different things. I feel like you've learned a lot along the way. And so before we get into it, what what does it mean to design a storytelling game? Because, I mean, there are lots of like choose your own adventure novels, and that's kind of a game. There's a little bit of a gamification there, and there's some story going on. But what you're doing is very, very different than that. And so in your mind, what is the definition of storytelling game when, when you have these storybook games? What are you thinking? Well, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of definitions, I guess. Everything's sort of loose in our industry. We don't have real tight jargon, but um, for me, a storytelling game is a game that um, has more uh, narrative to it, not just emerging narrative, but more narrative to it that's been supplied by the creator of that game that uh, is an added layer of immersion for the players and it adds uh, sort of a continuity to the story. It gives you purpose for your characters in the story. And, um, it, you know, and many times it involves the players actually reading a bit of story or, um, or having the story read to them by another player or by an app or something like that. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about apps uh, here in just a little bit. That's something you and I were actually chatting about in the, uh, BGDL community. And you wrote this really great blog post that I'll link to in the, in the show notes about kind of integrating an app into the, into the game and how you were reluctant at first. And now we're getting into it. And so I'm excited to chat about that here in a minute. Uh, but let's talk about why. Why are people drawn to these games? Uh, I mean, Pandemic did really well, but then Pandemic Legacy, which was now telling a story through Pandemic over the course of these many, many months, all of a sudden that became the number one game in the world for quite a while until Gloomhaven knocked it out. And then Gloomhaven has got some really interesting story elements as well. Not exactly a storytelling game, but still story in there. And so what is it yeah. about these kinds of games that really draw people in? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, I think that uh, people actually like to have you know, they like to have a, a goal or some some sort of reason for their, you know, if you're, if you're playing a character-based game, like, for instance, Pandemic is a character-based game, and so is Gloomhaven. You want to have some sort of motivation for your character that allows you to kind of, you know, detach from yourself and sort of get into your avatar, you know? And, you, and providing that purpose for your character could be as simple as just knowing what, what your goals are, or it could be as detailed as knowing what, uh, that, what makes that character tick. But the important part is, is that um, when our the way our brains work is our memory center is um, almost it, it's almost uh, tied to uh, to some sort of emotional uh, reaction. So, uh, and I and I may have told this story last time I was on your podcast, but 
games can be a, a thinky and wonderful thinky experience, like a Sudoku Sudoku puzzle, or they can be, you know, an emotional experience, like a good book, or they can be some sort of combination of both. Like a Sudoku puzzle can be a wonderful uh, pastime, but can you ever can you remember any particular Sudoku puzzle that you've ever done? Or I don't even know. You might not have ever even done a Sudoku puzzle. I have attempted some Sudoku puzzles. I don't know that I <laughs> would ever have done one, but uh, yeah, I get your point. Keep going. Yeah, so like you're not going to remember any specific Sudoku puzzle that you've done. It's a, it was an enjoyable exercise and stuff. But um, I was on an air, airplane ride um, a few years ago, and I was sitting in the middle seat, like seems to often happen to me. And on one side of me, I had a lady reading a book, and the other side of me, I had a guy who was doing a Sudoku puzzle. And when the flight ended. The guy rolled up his uh, Sudoku puzzle and shoved it in his bag. The lady closed her book and she was, her eyes were like on the verge of tears. I looked over at her and I was like, oh, that was a good book. And she just, she just sighed deeply and just, she said, oh, it really was, you know? (laughs) And so that struck me at that moment. I thought to myself, that guy's not going to remember his Sudoku puzzle the way that he passed time on the airplane. But this lady is always going to remember every detail about this plane flight, about where she was going. And all of that memory is going to happen because of that emotional experience she had from reading that portion of the book. And that's what we do with story games. We try to create these indelible experiences that just that, that, that stick in our memory banks. So like when, when kids play Mice and Mystics for the first time, they will remember that for the rest of their lives. That's what I want. I want to shape n- new gamers and I want to shape people. And I want to pe- have people always think back and remember, oh, I remember when I was playing Mice and Mystics and we were having this great time. And they'll remember more details than they would if it was just like a puzzly kind of game. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I actually saw a, I think it was a TED Talk a while back, and it was talking about D&D or, or Dungeons and Dragons and how it affects our brains. And what they learned in this this research, these studies that they, they did, was that the things that happen to you in Dungeons and Dragons, so you've got your avatar, you've got your character, your, your rogue, your fighter, whatever, you're going out into the world, these things are happening to you, you're having this story line play out. And the things that, that show up in the brain are the exact same things that show up when you're remembering actual memories. So the when you're remembering, oh, my, my fighter, we were in this, this big brawl with a dragon, and I jumped on a table, and I jumped did this and that and the other, and I sliced it, whatever. The, the same parts of your brain that light up under MRI or under however they, they test these things, it's the exact same place in the brain that lights up when you're saying, oh, yes, yesterday uh, my wife and I, we went on a date. And when you're talking about real things yeah. versus things that happen that are imaginary, it, the same places in your brain light up as if they actually happen to you. And so it's really interesting to think through, okay, in my game, in my board game, can I give a player a character? Can I give them a hero? Can I give them a person that they are actively portraying in the world? Because they're going to literally remember it the same way that they remember things that actually happen to them. And so I think that's something that you're definitely tapping into with your games. And it's more than just, okay, I've got my city or I've got my kind of Euro mechanism thing going on here and this happens and I move the cube and and then that happens. It's different than, okay, I'm Steve and I've got a sword and I'm going to go fight the dragon. Like there's something different going on there for sure. And I think it's just something to be aware of as a, uh, as a game designer. But speaking of game design, what drew you in to design these kinds of games? So that's why players love playing them, but why do you love to design them? 
Well, I, because th- I, I love to play them because, um, you know, it was something that I felt was uh, sorely missing from the uh, the board game versions of role playing games. So, for instance, I'll use Hero Quest as an example because it was like the first game that came out in board game form that was basically trying to replicate an RPG. It had very, very small little story bits, enough to, you know, to make it, you know, to for you to remember what what the goal of each quest was, but not enough for my tastes. And so um, I just thought that 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 was something that I would like. Um, I wanted a board game experience that reminded me of playing RPGs when I was in in middle school. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The game I've been working on for a while, actually a year and a half going on two years now, is honestly based on Pokemon. And it's, I wish there was a really good Pokemon board game that gave you the same feeling of exploration and fighting and going out into the world and becoming the best you can possibly be. And that doesn't exist in, in board game form. I'm like, let's, let's make that. And let's, there's no monster ranching kind of game at all. I didn't know that. Not, not in the way that I'm looking for. There are some games out oh, there where cool. the monster ranching is the thing or the fighting is the thing, uh-huh. but when it comes to like exploring a world and having to figure out puzzles and, and meeting new people and fighting against them and earning badges and all that kind of stuff, it just doesn't exist. And the Pokemon board game that came out years ago is uh, basically roll and see what happens. And it's very much not Pokemon at all. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, you know what? This needs to be a thing. And so it I designed does. my little rope. Robomon world where it's instead of monsters, <laughs> it's robots. And you know, there's a whole storyline that goes along with that. And the same as you, it's like, I want this to exist. I want this story to be told. And so I guess I'm the one that's going to have to tell it. And it's been a ton of fun to figure it out, but these games take forever to design. So tell me about the timelines for the games that, that you've been working on, whether it's stuff, fables, coming on to aftermath, familiar tales, how long does it take to put one of these games together? Because there's so much writing and there's so much to test and there's so many things to figure out. What's the timeline? Uh, you're looking at like two to three years per, uh, per game, but there's overlap because what I start doing is, um, I'm always writing, uh, story ideas down. And then if I find a story in my mind that I feel has merit, then I do my creative writing. I spend my creative writing time working on that story. So then if I get a game design that fits that story really well, um, and, uh, and I like how everything's sort of coming together, then I can present it to Colby and just say, Hey, listen, I got this story idea. Here's the mechanics that support it. And, and then he either gives it a green light or a red light. And that makes a lot of sense. And I guess at this point, you've, you've kind of hopefully got some kind of templatized stuff, at least a little bit with the storybook system, because the system for your games lately have all been basically the same. We have this book that opens up and on one side you've got like a map and you've got some tactical things going on with miniatures or things happening. And on the right side, you've got story elements and you've got things that are going on for that map specifically. So has that kind of made it easier to say, all right, here's the system and then you can kind of create new things that go with it? Well, the system, yeah, uh, the system kind of gives you your parameters. Like I know what I'm working with. I know, I mean, when I start to design a game, like as I'm, as I'm even in the earliest stages, I start, you know, mapping out the component uh, requirements and stuff, which I think is very important. And so I know how many pieces of art are going to need for the book. And I know how many, you know, how many words uh, each chapter can have and how many words each page can, can handle and stuff. But, um, but you know, like this, my most recent game, this uh, Familiar Tales, is uh, is app driven. So the story was actually taken out of the book and put into the app. So you're not, you don't have these very cluttered, congested pages in the in the storybook. Um, the only thing that's in the location we call it a location book. The only thing that's in the location book right now, or anything that's relevant to that page, 
um, but all the story elements have been pulled out. And so they've been put into the app where there's no constraints on, you know, space and you can have more branching dialogues and stuff like that. Yeah. that's one thing I am so impressed with. And as a person that's creating one of these games, like I, I feel like I have a much deeper love than most people that are going to play it because I understand how hard it is to pull this thing off. And the fact that you guys did this with Forgotten Waters and now you're doing it with Familiar Tales, but you have so many branching options where you can say, okay, do you want A or B? All right, I want B. All right, then that leads to, do you want C or D? Okay, I want D. And you're not flipping through 10 pages of an actual book. You're just clicking the button on the app and it's going automatically to these different places and you've got voice acting and you've got music and sound effects and it creates this amazing just ambiance, this experience. So was that your idea to kind of pull that in or did that come from Colby or somebody else to just create this full on experience? Like, Tell me the genesis of kind of where we are now with just creating an incredible uh, game gaming experience. Back when Joe and Isaac and um, Mr. Bistro here at Plat Hat Games, back when they were working on um, Forgotten Waters, they they were writing, you know, they were going to have a big spiral bound storybook similar to uh, like Tales of the Arabian Nights or something like that. And um, it just kept on, I mean, what they wanted to do with the game kept on growing the size of that book. And it got to the point where they realized that the player experience would be better if they were to take some of that heavy lifting off of the players and put it into an app. And of course, you know, Joe is our tech guy and he can write all that stuff. And he, uh, you know, he just came up with this little app that would take care of the story and just a little bit of, uh, you know, quality of life elements and stuff. And then it just made the game so much better. And it, and it solved a lot of solutions for them that, and a, and a lot of component solutions that we were struggling with. So when I pitched um, Familiar Tales to Colby, when I pitched the game to Colby, in my mind, I felt pretty good about this being an app. And I, even though I had never personally designed with an app um, feature, I really wanted to really bad after seeing the results and seeing how much improvement uh, the gameplay experience had in um, Forgotten Waters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it just allows you so many more options. One of the things I've run into and just kind of having to prevent myself from having too many branching narratives, because I don't want players having to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to turn to page 105 and now I got to turn to page 81 and I got to turn to page 63. And it just becomes this kind of a hassle and it becomes a greater chance of making a mistake or kind of getting lost. And wait, what was, what were we doing originally? (laughs) And so you run into these issues when you have a book. And so thinking through those things, and, and I guess my answer was, well, pretty much all of my little story moments are self-contained. It's you're not ever going to have to turn more than one time. So you have yeah. the, the thing that happens and maybe you have to roll some dice or play, you know, cards or whatever. Sure. And then, and then it ends like you're not having these branching narratives. And when you're designing kind of a Pokemon style game, that's, that's fine anyway. Like you're not telling this grand narrative. It's, Hey, you, you meet the person, you do a thing, you move on to the next map. I mean, that's just kind of part of the, the genre. So my, my situation is a little easier, but if anybody's listening to this, thinking through, having one of these kinds of games where you have a, a storybook or whatever, really think through that player experience and don't have them turn to page 15 and then have to turn to page 195. Like just think through how many pages they are going to have to go through and how annoying that might be. Um, and then maybe an app is the answer. Now from a cost standpoint, you don't have to tell me exact numbers, but is it wildly expensive to do this? Do you need your own dedicated person? Like tell me just kind of the tech side, any of it that you are aware of. Okay. So you do, I mean, I, think that you probably do need your own dedicated tech 
person. I know that you can outsource it. Uh, you can get a freelance uh, service or something like that to do it, but I'm not familiar with how that works. I'm fortunate because we have Joe on our staff who is an amazing, uh, he's an amazing programmer when it comes to this sort of thing. And um, he's very much um, a big time team member uh, when it comes to both game design and and all, all the aspects of, of, of our publishing company. Um, he manages our website. He takes care of all of our, our, our web store. Uh, he does so many different things. And then he also creates these incredible apps. Um, it is uh, it is cheaper, I believe. If you have somebody on staff who's already paid to do this and stuff, I believe it's probably cheaper than um, having to print, you know, X number of copies of a big fat book. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's definitely something to think about. And as far as, as far as like, how much is the game going to weigh now? Because you have this 300 page tome of storybook elements. And just anyway, there's a lot to to kind of balance out. It's like the pros and the cons. And if you're just starting out and you're a one man person, one person shop, it might not be worth it to travel down this road. It might be way too expensive. Or maybe your Kickstarter makes a million dollars and then you can do whatever you want. But uh, it's definitely something to just kind of to keep in mind. I'd like to point out too that like, you were talking about your um, your goal with your Pokemon game uh, to have like these narratives that, that are very, very self-contained and short and stuff. And really what what we're talking about is player experience here. So it, where where you feel that uh, something you're putting into a game enhances a player experience, then, you know, lean into it a little bit. And if you feel that you're putting something in there that might be taken away from the player experience, then you need to examine those things and figure out a solution or roll back a little bit of the intensity that you're doing. For instance, if I was adding way too much story into a game where where the players are having to read it and they're having to pass around a big book and it's multiple pages of, of reading, I believe, I personally believe that that would be a negative experience and that would pull away from my game. Yeah, 100%. And that's one thing I was really thinking through with mine is, so mine is really a, a solo experience. You can do it with two players. It works really well with two. But honestly, it's kind of like playing a Pokemon video game. It's, it's really good by yourself and you're making all the decisions. And so you're not having to read out loud. And I think that's mm-hmm. one thing to keep in mind. And one thing I love about Familiar Tales, Forgotten Waters, no one at the table has to be a really good reader because the game will read to you. And it's got great voice acting and sound effects in, in the background uh, as well. And because like I'm a person, I have, I've got dyslexia and I hate reading out loud. Uh, it bothers me. Um, I've gotten pretty good at it and I can kind of get around my, my challenges. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's not super fun for me to read like a long paragraph in front of a whole bunch of other people uh, unless I can practice it beforehand, right? If I can read it beforehand and kind of have it memorized, yeah. it's fine. But when I'm reading it for the first time, it's, there's, there's probably going to be some uh, funny moments where I put some letters in the wrong place and say words that uh, either don't exist or they're really hilarious words where I say sex instead of six and uh, it makes everyone chuckle. But that's just something to keep in mind with your player experience. And one thing I, I, I've worked through, so a lot of my little vignettes uh, originally were about 400 words long. Mm-hmm. And that was just a little bit too long. And so mm-hmm. we bumped it down to 300 and that gets the game moving a little bit quicker and you're not losing that much. You're taking out a little bit of detail, a little bit of you know explanation of things. But 400 down to 300 doesn't matter for one little vignette, but over the course of a game, that's quite a bit of time that you have, you would shrunk it down. And so yeah. thinking through how much do I have? I know with Mice and Mystics, you had these kind of long uh, storybook elements a, a player would read uh, before you got into a scenario. You kind of have this chapter uh, that you would go into. And so looking back, was was it too long? Was it too short? Like how have you how have you changed from Mice and Mystics as far as the writing and the word count up until now? 
Well, I, I mean, I feel, I feel like at the beginning of a scenario, it's perfectly appropriate to have a longer winded, you know, session that sort of sets you up and gets you expect, you know, expecting all of the goals that you'll need to meet and stuff for that, um, for that chapter or for that game session and whatnot. But if it's a story thing that's happening in the middle of the game, when you're right in the middle of playing and then suddenly some sort of story bit pops up, it really needs to be short. Um, and so, yeah, you know, in, in, in my submistics and just about any other game I've made, um, it, the longer ones are, are put at the front of each game. Style. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But at, like you said, if you're right in the middle of a play session, you're in the middle of the fighting dragons, you don't want to pop up this thousand word, 1500 word uh, thing that you have to read out and then figure out and like, oh, wait, whose turn was it? Where, where were we? What were we doing? Yeah, it's going to spoil the immersion. It'll spoil the immersion for sure. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's let's uh, let's keep talking about the storybook system. So again, going back early days, you had Mice and Mystics, you had these big tiles that the player would have to look at the, the book and, and figure out, okay, here's the scenario, here's how we set it up, here's where things go. And now you literally just open a page and it's good to go. And so tell me about that evolution and what you've really been able to gain by using this, this book of maps as opposed to tiles and scenarios set up and, and things like that. So the book of maps... Um that that each of my current games have is uh it's something that makes setup and tear down super easy um it provides fog of war so uh so you don't know i mean it makes players want to turn that page to discover what's happening on the next page or whatever it also allows you to have like a handy little rules reference so you can have different rules for different pages and stuff you know one page you don't have to go back to the rule book to look for, oh, how does water work? This page has a river running through it. It's just right there on the page telling you, okay, this is how water works. And that kind of thing, it's all quality of life stuff for the player. The things that I lose by having a book is I have to make everything fit on a 10 by 10 inch square. And that is very limiting. And so, and I don't mind limitations and stuff. Those, I think uh, those make... They, they hone your skills every time you have to work within a limitation. It makes you a better designer. But it does limit the things that I can do in the sense that I don't, I can't have like these really, really big scenes and stuff um, unless I figure out some way to do a two-page spread or something like that, which I've done. And I had plans to do um, some of that stuff with uh, some, some of my stuff coming up in the future. So yeah, those are the benefits and limitations. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I really love about it is that you don't have to know the entire rule book before you play the first scenario, before you open the book to the to page one. You can add rules as you go. Okay, this this scenario, this page has water. This is how water works. And you didn't have to know that until page seven. You didn't have to know that on page one, and then you weren't going to get there until page seven. And then you have to go, wait, how does water work? And we got to go back and read the rule book again and remember and figure it out. No, it's like it's right here. It's on the page. You don't have to flip through the rule book to find it. It's right there. Uh, and you can add things as you go. And so you can kind of guide the players through the game into these more complicated, more advanced things, mechanisms and rules and whatnot. And it's kind of like a video game. That's how video games work. You start off and you don't know how to do anything. It says, all right, pull the right trigger to shoot. All right, boom, boom, boom. Cool. I know how to do that now. Now pull the left trigger to throw a grenade. Boom, boom. I did that. Okay. And it kind of guides you through. And as you get new weapons, it'll pop up a little tutorial and say, hey, this is how this thing works. Okay, cool. And the player doesn't have to know everything going in. And so the barrier to entry for your games just seems so much lower than other games that are scenario based or have a lot going on that you kind of have to read through this 25 page rule book and now you can play versus read the four page rule book. And then we're going to add <laughs> rules as we go. It just yeah. seems to make a lot more sense. And uh, I guess it also gives you more 
flexibility as a designer because so have you have you thought of through this, like thinking through, okay, I want this new mechanism to show up halfway through the game, or I know in Familiar Tales, you have like three chapters or three parts. And so are you thinking through, all right, this is how we want to add to the game and when, like, do you have it kind of systematized and kind of mapped out how you're going to add new stuff and, and when as the game moves forward? Yeah, but it's not, uh, you know, I don't have like some sort of magical formula that I could impart on people. Uh, the, the idea, well, what, what happened is when I made Mice and Mystics, one of the one of the big drawbacks of Mice and Mystics was that there were, you know, uh, environmental elements and stuff that had their own special rules for how they, how they worked. And you would, you know, you would only encounter those when you're on certain tiles. And in that case, you'd be like, wait a minute, how does this work again? And then you have to go thumbing through the rule book. And it just became this, you know, monotonous um, experience of, of, of having to go away from the game, ruin your immersion, whip out the rule book, People are waiting around while one person's reading the rule book, looking for the rule. It gets very frustrating. Um, so having those like right there on the page is just it opens up all these opportunities and stuff. And in Familiar yeah. Tales, as we change from one era to the next, because the game takes place over three eras, we're able to like introduce all this new stuff when when the eras happen. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, absolutely. And it also gives the players a sense of progression. They feel like our characters have grown. Our characters are, are moving through the story and the game is is interacting with us in this way because now we're in this new part. We've gained new abilities, new weapons, new items, new ways to look at the world. And it's just a cool way to also embrace the storytelling element as well and kind of integrate these things together. I think it's just a really cool way to do it. Also, I want to point out in Familiar Tales, you, you've got this fail forward system where you know it's not, oh, we, we lost and now we're going to do this chapter again. We're, you know, thing, bad things happened. We didn't fully complete the scenario, but we're still going to move on to the next one. Tell me about that decision and what you gain. Also, maybe some of the, the downsides of kind of this fail forward system. Sure. Okay. So uh, on the upside, you have, you have, a, when you're progressing through the story, you're always progressing through the story. When you're playing the game, you're always working towards, you know, the, the big finale. Um, the, which finale you get is going to be determined by how much, uh, bad mojo that you've uh, acquired we call misfortune um, that you've acquired throughout the game that's the fail forward effect so if you uh for instance in era one um you have this little child you're taking care of a baby and you got to keep that baby happy keep the baby from crying keep the baby clean keep the baby fed while you're dealing with enemies and you know uh, treacherous treacherous environments and stuff like that and all kinds of puzzles and mysteries that you're solving Meanwhile, you still always have the, the the pressures of dealing with this child. If you do poorly and you will uh, and you let the child you know cry and scream a lot and go unfed, then you're going to build up uh, misfortune. And when you get to era two, the game's going to ask you to add up all of your misfortune, and that will determine the quality of the child that you're going to get in era two because the baby is now a little girl. And if she's a disobedient little girl, she'll be running off and causing more problems in addition to all the other pressures that you have. And then that's going to compound the situation. Now, when she becomes a young woman, she has magical powers and all kinds of crazy stuff. And if she is an unruly and rebellious young teenager, she could be quite dangerous. So that's really how we do the fail forward. The drawback of fail forward is that you know, you know, when you're playing the game that there's always a safety net and that might make players feel like, you know, uh, as a designer that I'm pulling punches and stuff. 
But um, we tried it both ways. We literally had it. We had a hard fail in the game. And, you know, playtesters were like, well, it really sucked because this happened. And then we had to go back. We already knew what we were doing, you know. And it just it, it created sort of an unnecessary, uh, you know, negative dopamine response when the fail forward seems to make for a better experience. Right. I agree. And if you want players to progress through the story, if that's really what you're chasing as far as the gaming experience is for them to ex- experience the story, then fail forward makes a lot more sense than having to go back and redo the same scenario that they just did. And it took them an hour and it really came down to the final die roll and they lost. And now they got to do an hour again because of one die roll at the end. You know, And so just thinking through, like, what do you want players to do now? If the gaming experience you're going for is mastery over the system, or, or something along those lines, then it might make sense to have them redo scenario. I know with my own game, with, with Rogamon, it's a little bit easier because the player is never the one taking damage. It's always their robots. You know, in Pokemon, yeah. you're not the one getting beat up. You're not the one dying. It's your monsters. And so yeah. with my game, it's a little bit easier because when you lose a, a not necessarily a scenario, but if you lose a battle, then you come out of the battle and maybe you lose some, some money or something like that. But then you just got to go heal up your robots, and you go right back in and do the same battle again, and now you've got knowledge, because now you know what that other trainer has, and so maybe you change your team a bit, and that way you're going li- you're gonna to match up with them a little bit better, and so you can kind of, I, I kind of have this best of both worlds, where you, you're failing forward in, in that the game doesn't restart, like you're not having to go back to the uh-huh. beginning, it's just that one little uh, battle or, or something like that, but you've also got some mastery going on, because like, oh, okay, let me switch this one out, and let me put this other one in, and that's going to give me an advantage over this other trainer. And so yeah, hopefully like uh, I'm, I'm figuring it out. But again, as a designer, it's all about thinking through what experience are you trying to create? Does fail forward make sense? Does restarting make sense? If you have a time travel game or if you have like a, a Groundhog Day, the movie from, with Bill yeah. Murray, like where you're having to repeat it over and over and over again, that might make sense from the experience standpoint. So just something to, uh, to keep in mind. Speaking of scenarios, let's talk about length. I know with Mice and Mystics, sometimes they might run a little bit long, depending on how the dice went for or against you. Uh, I, okay. I know now that you've got familiar tales, you've got some really cool things to kind of speed up, set up and speed up the, the tear down, the save and all that. But talk to me about scenario length, especially when you're creating like a family style game where you, you're not you're probably not going to have like a three hour scenario with your kids. You might do that with your normal gaming group. So that's something to think of. <laughs> but what are you thinking about as a designer when it comes to, all right, I want this scenario to take X amount of time and this is what's going to happen. What are you thinking? So I, what I think is that I want, I want a game session to be uh, within the the time frame that I think is appropriate for the for the age and for the gaming, uh, you know, uh, experience of the player. So I typically try to aim for a ninety minute game session. I did something new in Familiar Tales. Um, basically, Familiar Tales allows you to save the game about every about every twenty or thirty minutes. Um, it'll offer you an opportunity to save the game. And so you can really basically tailor make the the game session to your lifestyle. You could play for 30 minutes. You could play for three hours. It's totally up to you. You choose the length of the game session. And that's something I'm really into right now. But in the past, what I've done is I've broken down, like I've tried to sit in time. I sit in time everything. And then I break down what t- how long it takes to do any of these individual things. And then I just use that as sort of like my guide. So um, if I know in Mice and Mystics, when I was designing Mice and Mystics, every tile side, remember the tiles can flip from side to side. And that that was a solution that saved space on the table and allowed you to have a much bigger adventure. 
but each tile side that you encountered uh, was roughly 15 to 20 minutes of gameplay. And so I knew that when I was putting a scenario together, how many tile sides that the characters were going to encounter. And then that, and then I knew how to make my, my scenario. And I do the same thing with my adventure books. I know how long each page typically takes. And then I just put that many pages into each, you know, what I would consider a game session with the exception of familiar tales where I don't even have that issue anymore. Yeah. That's another benefit of the app and that you can save the game and, and tell me about that. How, cause that's one thing I'm running into is like, how do you save the game so that a player can jump right back in because you want to grease the tracks. That's, that's one thing about any of these kinds of games is like the harder you make it to get to the table, the less likely it's going to be to get to the table. So like, how do you grease the tracks? And- that, yeah, that's a huge hurdle. That's a huge hurdle. I mean, just literally people ha- are, are pressed for time and just getting a game to the table. If it feels laborious at all, then chances are they're going to whip out an easier game. Like they'll put a Zool out because it's just quick to set up, you know, and, and play. Um, but I want them to play my game. Uh, yeah, that. So, so what we, what I've done is, um, first of all, like I did with Aftermath, which did not have an app. Um, Aftermath had a good save system for its campaign, and it we use dials, like all these different dials, and they're nice and uh, and nice and firm. They had nice and good friction in them, so you could throw them back in the box, and then the next time you play, you pull out all your dials, and all of those values are still the same. And we also use deck boxes, and so. I did the same thing with Familiar Tales. Every character has their own little deck box. You just throw your stuff in your deck box and stick it in the, uh, back in the box. And then the next time you go to play, you hand out the deck boxes and people pop them open and they pour their stuff out. There's their cards. There's their, you know, their figure, their tokens that they've collected. The dials you put out, they're, all re- they're still in their values that they were before and everybody's ready to go. The app will literally walk you step by step through setting up. And then when you go to put the game away, it'll walk you step by step for putting the game away. So it does it every time. It's holds your hand every time when you go to do that, which means that you don't have to look through the rule book or anything. Yeah. And it's such a smart way to use the app and to make the game again, easier for players to get back in the box and then also to take it back out of the box the next day or whenever they want to play again. And then something I actually learned from you is using those deck boxes. And that's something I've been uh, using in my own game is have separate deck boxes for different things. Uh, as far as like different cards that you've acquired over the game and you're not having to put them back in the big deck. You just kind of put them off to the side and say, no, this is what I had. And so here they are in the deck box. And then when I play again, they're just right there. I don't go find them or figure yeah. it out or, or that kind of thing. Um, another thing I'm, I've been using is basically a character sheet like you would find in a role playing mm-hmm. game, like Dungeons yeah. and Dragons, where you actually write down what you have. And so like during the game, you might have some tokens that, you know, you have five and then I spend three and I've got two left. And whenever you want to save the game, well, you just write it on your sheet. And that way you just pull the sheet out and go, okay, I had two of those, I had five of these, whatever. Uh, and you don't even have to take out tokens. Like the game yeah. has very few tokens because most of it just exists on your sheet. And you just erase it and write the new number and it, it acts as a save file. And then also eliminates component needs because most of the stuff you're not going to use very often. It's like components and, and different things for your robots, a spring or mm-hmm. power core, a circuit board that you might use for different recipes and building or upgrading or whatever. But the character sheet was a huge thing. People love character sheets. They just do. People, I love them. I love them. I love having my own little character sheet that I can do with what I want. Yeah, 100%. And then the game has like stickers. So when you acquire certain special items or mm-hmm. in my game, if you acquire badges, you just go to the sticker sheet, you pull the sticker off, you put it on your sheet, and now you get this sense of progression and it's permanent. Uh, and there's, But there's also a ton of stickers so you can play through the game multiple times. Um, but that's, that was my answer is the, is the character sheet. People love stickers too. <laughs> exactly. So hopefully it's going to work <laughs> I out. I love them. 
<laughs> really well. Uh, and again, it greases the tracks. You know what we do in in, um, in Familiar Tales and in Forgotten Waters and some of the other games is we uh, we have a keyword system. So um, this is also something, another layer of memory that the game has. So like if we have something that we want you to remember long term, we'll have you write it, the keyword down on your campaign journal. Um, and this, you know, later on, you might be in an encounter and the game will ask you, do you have such and such keyword written in your campaign journal and if you do then you get this effect and if you don't then you get another effect well the thing is like what i discovered is that was not even the best way to do it the keyword idea is really cool but what other game companies are doing with keywords is they are literally you get a sheet of all the possible keywords in the game and then when the game tells you it'll just say check the put the check mark in the box next to such and such keyword right so then all you got to do is just put a check mark. You don't even have to write it down and then worry about your, your handwriting being legible later on. So I think that's a cool innovation too. I would have done that with familiar tales. Yeah. I think that's an excellent way to do it. I think sleeping gods from Ryan Lockett does something like that. And the great thing also is it makes finding the keywords easier because if you interact with keyword Apple and then later on interact with, with keyword dog, well, that's nice because they're in alphabetical order. But what if you interact with dog and then Apple and now all your keywords are out of alphabetical order and it's harder to find things. But with the sheet that you're checking off, it's already organized. And so if you need keyword elephant, well, you just go to the E section. Oh, I've got elephant or no, I don't have elephant. And it makes it so much easier. That's a really good, good point. I really wish I had done that with familiar tales. It was too late by the time, by the time I saw that, uh, that implementation. Speaking of Sleeping Gods, it's a beautiful game, and it is it is a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. But I got to tell you, that game makes me want an app when I'm playing it because it has got so much fiddly stuff that you have to manage all this stuff, and it's very scattered all over the place. And it is really, really, it's one of those things where, for me, with my lifestyle and what I'm into, that's a negative for me. because And, and if you have a tool like an app, like, like I do, and I know that some people are against apps and everything, but if you have a tool that you know is going to make life easier for your for your end user. I almost feel compelled to use it or you know obligated to use it in some ways because I know it's going to make the experience better for them. I mean Sleeping Gods is intimidating. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think it's an amazing game and honestly it was one of the main things that let me know that I could do Mm-hmm. A Pokemon style game, the way I wanted it to, the way they used the map book, and the way they had all, so many cool, cool things going on. Like it was huge inspiration for me personally. But one of the drawbacks is that there are so many resources and tokens and things to take out of the box and put back in the box and set up takes a while. And there's a lot going on. There's t- like 50 11 characters you have to pull out every time. And so there's just a lot going on. And so setup can be a little bit daunting. And that's one of the things that led me to using a character sheet and saying, okay, for resources, pull out a character sheet done. You're not having to figure out, okay, well, here's where this goes and that goes and all that kind of stuff. Tell me about some of the other innovations you've come up with as far as setup. Again, to get the game to the table as quickly as possible so players are jumping right into the experience and not having to figure out, okay, here's 10 decks of cards and here's 50 different types of tokens. Like, What do you do to make setup just so fast? Well, um, you know, I went over the deck boxes and stuff. We also have a token organizer in... um, in that comes with familiar tales and that's a really cool thing because you have all your resource tokens which would be individual little piles of tokens that you would have to set out and then we have this uh this token holder that you just set out and you open up the lid and boom there it is you have all your tokens ready to go let me tell you what what, setting up for demos and stuff like that 
um, a lot like I have been doing lately and taking my game here and showing it to these people. When I go to set up and it's easy and quick to set up, then I'm then I'm happy. And when I'm happy, then I, I can't help but think that that is going to uh, transfer to the end user as well. So little things like that uh, are really helpful. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious about as well, because your game has different parts, uh, different, you know, acts, I guess. What, what do you call it? What do you call the three parts? Are they act one, two and three or what do you call them? Eras. Yeah. Eras. Okay. So you've got these three eras. Did you also find yourself with the ability to say, okay, here are things you only find in era one. And so here you go. If you're not in era two or three, then you don't need any of these components over here. They'll show up later. You only need era one components. And that makes setup faster because it's fewer things to take out of the box. Like that's one thing I'm trying yeah. to do is like, okay, if you only have certain cards that show up in, in act one, then here's those cards and components and don't worry about this other stuff. They're labeled. You, you'll know it when you get there. It'll The game will be very clear <laughs> when you need those things. And so you don't have to worry about that. Did you do something with like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Era, Era, Era 2 and Era 3 components are kept in deck boxes until you reach those eras. And so you don't even use, you're not, you don't even have to fiddle with that stuff. It's all packed away until you get to those eras and stuff. Also, another thing that uh, we can do with the app that we've done with the app is that um, it, it'll give you a recap. So it's, you know, it's like previously on familiar tales and it'll get you all the way up to where you're at. And it's really kind of neat when you're when you're there and you listen to the previously on familiar tales, because, you know, you hear the the narrator going over, you know, in uh, like an overview of what you've already experienced. And it's nice refresher. And I find that that's really helpful, too, because if it's been my big worry is that somebody might go like six weeks or something in between plays and then they pull it out and they forget where they were at. They forget what was going on in the story. And sometimes they even forget a little bit of the rules on how to play. And we have all those solutions right there because of the app. Yeah, I love that. And it's also got voice actors doing it, uh, yeah. I assume. And so <laughs> it makes it even better of an experience. And it's, it reminds me, honestly, of how TV used to be back yeah. when you watched your show on Tuesday night and it wouldn't come on again until next Tuesday night. And uh -huh. so the show would start with like a 30 second previously on the you know last episode and it would give you a recap or, or a summary of things that happened earlier in the season that you're going to need to know for this coming up episode back before, you know, Netflix just dropped 20 episodes <laughs> all in one day and you just binged through the whole thing. And so it makes a lot of sense because gamers might not play again for a week or two or a month or a, or a pandemic might happen <laughs> and 18 months go by and you haven't played <laughs> pandemic legacy, you know, chapter four yet. And so something to definitely keep in mind. Yeah. And you know, back, I mean, there was a time in TV where if you missed a show, you just missed it and you couldn't, you know, you just missed it. And so having that recap of what happened the previous week, even though you didn't watch the episode, would be helpful as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back in the uh, the days before you could just have everything at your fingertips. Kids yeah. these days, man, kids these days. But um, all right, let's talk about mechanisms a little bit. So you, in your games, you've used custom dice. You've used regular dice. Uh, you've used deck building in the latest game. Uh, you've had lots of different systems and so tell me about what you've learned. You know, is there one, not necessarily better, but it, does it fit? Are you always looking for fit as far as the theme and integrating things? Like, tell me about the different systems you're using to kind of implement the theme into the actual game. Okay, cool. Um, well, first of all, the way, I, the way I design is interesting. Like, if I come up with a game design, I'm always thinking of, you know, tinkering around with game design, just mechanics. And then, of course, I'm always tinkering around with stories, too. And so trying to find, you know, the two things that fit together is important. Um, 
one thing I knew with uh, Familiar Tales is that I wanted to have a card crafting uh, sort of ability in there. I wanted the, the characters to be able to find resources and make their own little items and stuff that were unique to them. And so that kind of like led me into, um, you know, going down this rabbit hole of just creating a game where you were crafting your own character's narrative. And so I started coming up with ideas for, for, for cards that you could draft that would expand your character's narrative. And then I, in, I, I had this universal um, deck building system that I've been playing around with for, you know, conducting an RPG like experience and stuff. And I realized all these things were all having to do with crafting your own personal character's story and their own items and everything. And I just, I, I thought, wow, all of this goes together and then it would really go good with a game that's has a sort of a legacy element, like, uh, like familiar tales. And so it all just sort of meshed together. The idea in familiar tales is that you, you are, it's a little light deck builder. So your character has a deck of cards and then you can purchase new cards by gaining experience points. You spend your experience points to put new cards in your deck, right? Well, the cards have symbols on them and the symbols on the cards, uh, some symbols match the symbols on weapons and items that you, uh, that you craft using your resources. And so there's a synergy between your deck, uh, and your items. And that is what I think is probably going to be the coolest thing for players is to be able to craft items that, that work good with their deck and to build their deck to work good with their items. You, having that synergy, I think is going to be really fun and interesting. I know I like it a lot. Yeah. And I love how it gives players the opportunity to feel clever as they create the synergies, as they create combos that might arise. And as they work together, because I saw a preview of Familiar Tales mm -hmm. a couple of days ago and, and the way the players can assist each other and help each other out and, and overcome different challenges together and not just, okay, you go do that thing. I'll go do this thing and we'll figure it out in the middle. Now it's like, okay, let's help each other. And I think that's a really cool way, one, for families to interact and, and for kids to learn teamwork and cooperation and things like that. But it's also just a cool way to, to build your decks and, and think through, okay, this is a good card because it's going to help us do X, Y, or Z. Now, when it comes to cards versus uh, dice, what are some things that you you found? What are some things that you're thinking? I mean, dice are obviously a good bit more random. So maybe with, with cards, there's a little bit more control. But tell me some maybe the pros and cons with, with decks of cards versus dice. Well, the number one, I think the number one uh, pro for cards versus dice is that um, when it comes to manufacturing cost, you can have a far wider variety of, of, of resolution, of action resolution using cards. Because you can have, I mean, tons of cards with all different values on them. But to create dice that have all the different values, it's just a, a lot harder. You know? and, and it's expensive. And if you've seen games that, um, you know, that do this, then they are typically very expensive games because they have to have all these different dice and the dice are very, very costly. And so, um, yeah, I just think it's a cost cutting measure. I think there's a lot of stuff you can do with it. The way that decks work versus how dice rolls work um, is also very fun and interesting to work with. Um, being able to have things that, um, that like in dice, you just have random rolls, but if you had, if you have a deck, you can actually have recurring things happen in your deck that work kind of like a timer because you know, you, you, they could be at the bottom of your deck. And by the time they get all the way up to the top of your deck, that works like a timer with, you can't really do that with dice. Those are the kind of things. I, I mean, I, I liked the randomness of dice. Um, I also like, now I'm like all into this deal where I still love the randomness of dice and I love to be able to have 
have mechanics in my game that appeal to people who like luck like myself, but also those very same mechanics can be leveraged by a player who doesn't like luck to overcome the luck factor. And that's what I do in Familiar Tales really, really well is you can, you don't have to worry about luck because you can always play an additional card or two and you might get less actions because your cards are your actions, but you don't have to deal with luck. It's all up to you. Yeah, I love that. One thing I've been trying to figure out is kind of that balance, that intersection of chance, but also control. And so what I did actually was was create a dice pool system. So you have dice and you roll them and that gives you access to different actions. But when it comes to damage and movement and things like that, then that is more controlled. And mm-hmm. the more uh, dice you spend, maybe you can boost that damage. You can go from doing three damage to four or five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you're not going to have these huge swings. Because originally my game had a bunch of dice and you were just chucking dice, but you might roll a one and you might roll a 12. Well, mm-hmm. that's a bit of a swing. And so <laughs> it just didn't feel good, you know, to, to have that giant uh, gap between what could happen and what you hope to happen. Uh, and so the dice pool system was, was what I went to. And I think Stuff Fables uh, for you does something similar where you've got a, a bag of dice and you've, you're pulling them out and you've got access uh, to different things. I love that system, by the way, that you have the different colors that give you access to different things and, and the numbers on the dice affect different things. Like that was such a cool system. Explain that system to listeners just so they understand a little bit of what's going on. Because I found that to be just a really great way to, to handle the combat and the movement and everything for that game. Sure. Okay. Um, so when I was designing Stuff Fables, I wanted to have a game that um, that would be very simple for um, kids and also be interesting for adults. I wanted to kind of bridge that whole gap because the game is based on a Pixar movie and I love Pixar movies, how adults can watch them and enjoy them and kids can watch them and enjoy them. And they might be for the same reasons or they could be completely different reasons, but I love that they are able to bridge that big gap. And I wanted to do that with game design where, you know, you bridge this big gap between um, different people's, uh, you know, understandings of games. And so kids love dice and um, there's a tactile quality to reaching into a bag and pulling out, you know, and counting with your hands, you know, uh, blindly counting with your hands and pulling out five dice. That's just something that I just, I just, felt really resonated with kids. And then you have all the colorful dice. So you're matching colors, which is really great for kids. And then you're and then there's numbers and there's matching numbers and there's light math and stuff like that. All those elements seem to like they would work really well for a game that was uh, friendly for kids, but also kind of compelling because of the dice allocation elements that we see in a lot of modern games and stuff. It'd be compelling for um, in a casual way for, for um, more adult gamers. But what you do in my in stuff fables is on your turn the very first thing you do on your turn is you reach your hand into this big bag of colorful dice and you pull out five dice and the colors of the dice determine what you can do on your turn um and if you um you know if, if you're 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 playing a stuffed animal and your body your life points your hit points are literally pieces of stuffing and so if you pull a white die then you can roll it to gain stuffing back that you might have lost. Just think of it as like finding a piece of stuffing and shoving it back in your little stuffed animal. Black dice determine when the enemies come out. So as more of those end up on this track, then by the time the track fills up, then if there's any enemies in play, then they'll take their turn. Purple dice are wild. And then all the other dice um, match one of your attributes. And so you're just uh, combining dice and, uh, and, and, and using your, your dice as your attributes when you're uh, when you're taking actions and, and making tests. Yeah, and it was such a clever way to use D6s, just regular old one through six D6s. And just for the uh, colors to make 
sense and to do different things. I, I just found it to be a really clever system. I hope it shows up in other games. I, I think it's uh, still got some really cool ways to be implemented. Uh, and so hopefully people play it and think, oh, I could design a game around this one core mechanism and it shows up uh, in different ways. I like designing games around one simple core mechanism that is fairly universal for the whole game. That way, once you learn that, you pretty much know the game, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about puzzles a bit. I know Familiar Tales has some puzzles in there. So tell me about that, because I don't think all your games have had puzzles in them, or, or at least not in the same way. So tell me about designing these, why you wanted to implement puzzles in Familiar Tales. Just tell me all about what you gain, what you lose, any of that. Well, you know, I like games that don't entirely rely, you know, on going into a room and killing all the bad guys, going in the next room, killing all the bad guys. I mean, you know, I want to do different activities and things. And the neat thing about having, um, you know, a set of different skills is that you can, you know, have different activities that uh, test different skills and things like that. Um, there's uh, just a variety of different kinds of puzzles in in um, in familiar tales, but I, I've done it in some of my other games too. I think, um, you know, the uh, my stuff fables, oh brother, um, that one is more puzzly than than the first one for sure. Um, but there's there, I mean, I can't, I really can't go into detail on all the different kinds because there's, you know, some of them are just as simple as, you know, figuring out a, uh, uh, you know, like a, a set of clues to help figure out like a, a rhyme or something like that. And some of them are just putting things in certain orders or doing certain actions in certain orders and figuring out what order, um, just different things like that. I don't want to be too spoilery. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Do you do you lose anything though from having these puzzles? Have you found like if if you accidentally make one that's just way too hard and you know in playtesting and it just destroys the you immersion? Can't make, Any... You can't make them way too hard so that <laughs> they. I mean, unless they're just. Um, I mean, you can't have the game, the story depend upon passing a certain uh, puzzle or something. Um, you have to. If if that's the case, then the puzzle has to have some sort of you know end to it like in you know in, in, in stuff fables you'll eventually you'll eventually solve the puzzles um because that's just they'll eventually be solved it's just you want to solve them as quick as possible usually um and and same same thing with um familiar tales you're gonna have to i mean the longer you linger on trying to solve a puzzle, the more, you know, certain bad events might happen to you. And so you're going to be incentivized to try to finish out the puzzle. But none of them are going to be uh, like the riddle type where, you know, it's some sort of something that you have to solve that you that it's that's, you know, way out of left field or something. It's not going to be like that. It's kind of hard for me to describe. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm being vague, in a, but yeah, I'm just being purposefully vague and it sounds dumb, but um you know, you can't, they're, they're not going to be the kind of thing like, you know, a, a question about something that once you answer that question, then you'll always know the answer. It'll be something different. It'll be an activity involved and putting things in the right order or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Different. Yeah. Different than having like a logic puzzle or a spatial kind of puzzle um, where you can basically just sit there and stare at the thing for 10 minutes and then go, oh, no. Oh, OK, I got it. Um, it's a different kind of puzzle. Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to weigh the the value of the puzzle itself for its entertainment value versus, you know, what it's doing to the game itself, to the progressing the game itself. If you're just, you don't want to have something that's like a stumper that has people stuck there for half an hour. And you know, that's just going to create a negative experience. 
you want you yeah. know you you want them to constantly be working towards a solution and then eventually the solution is obvious and then they're like oh okay yeah that makes sense uh in in my game i've got a handful of the puzzles that are a bit of of stumpers but mm-hmm. they're completely unnecessary for the game it's really just hey if you can figure this out you're going to get something really really cool and you're going to feel awesome and clever and and the reward you get is going to be this really cool robot or, or something like that. But at the end of the day, if you don't want to do this, just keep going because the story has nothing. It, it's like side quest yeah. opportunities. And that's, that's yeah. one thing I've been trying to think through is like how to reward adults who love puzzles and, and, and love to feel smart and feel clever as they kind of put clues together and things like that. But at the same time for people that don't care about that kind of stuff to say, Hey, if that's not your thing, then don't worry about it. Just keep going. The story's over here and, you're, you're not going to lose anything necessarily and, so, and trying to find that balance. I'll give you an example of uh, one of the puzzles from stuff fables. Oh brother, yeah. where you're given a, you're given a code word from one character. And then a page or two later in, in the story, you're asked that code word. And all you have to do is you, you get a card. All you have to do is just pick that code word off the card, but it's a lot more difficult than you think. Because you didn't, I mean, you didn't write it down or anything. I'm sure, if, I mean, it would be an easy thing to solve if you'd written it down. But what, what happens in the story is you're, the, 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 the character says something like, you know, when you meet the guy at the gate, tell him the password fibbledy bits, right? So then later on, when you're at the gate, then you give him this card and it's like, is the password fibbledy bits or is it fiddledy bits or is it, you know, and it has all these different versions <laughs> of the word so this works with anybody it just works with anybody it's like oh you know you did you pay specific attention to every little syllable of that word because it is a a funky word or did you just think oh i'll be able to remember fiddly bits you know but then it's more more detailed than that i think those are kind of fun and interesting especially for kids i mean oh my god just watching them try to figure that one out it's hilarious yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about linear storytelling versus open world storytelling. I feel like Sleeping Gods is very much this open kind of world where I want to go to this island over here or I could go to that island over there. Either way, I'm going to have an adventure and the storytelling is kind of emergent uh-huh. in these different uh, things that are going on that I kind of create through my open world exploration mm-hmm. versus a story that goes A to B to C. And maybe there's some branching narratives. I know Familiar Tales has like different endings that you can arrive on and things like that. But tell me differences in and maybe what you've tried. Like, did you try to make Familiar Tales or any of these other games a little bit more open world, a little bit more branching and where the player can go different places whenever they want? Or has it always been, okay, it's just easier or it's just better to go more linearly? Tell me about anything you've run into. I've done both. So um, I have linear stories in the, in um, Mice and Mystics and Stuff Fables and um, Familiar Tales are all linear stories, even though, you know, they have multiple branching, you know, pathways and different outcomes and stuff. There's still a linear story. There's the story is headed in one direction and, you know, you're going to, you're going to hit the story beats as you go along. Um, and then I've also done some that are uh, far less linear, like uh, Aftermath and Comanauts, where um, you experience a story in whatever order you're experiencing it in, and then um, and then you know it, it becomes a cohesive narrative just through uh, just through the connections of your experiences and stuff like that. I love both forms of storytelling. I will say that the linear storytelling is. Um, 
is is better for a story that has a specific emotional focus and an, uh, a certain kind of outcome that you're going for and um the uh, open the open narrative that can be uh, taken in any order those are better for giving players a more of a sandboxy feel to the to the world and having agency over uh, how they how they absorb the story and stuff so i've done both it's harder to do the open sandboxy stuff and still help and still have the characters feel that they've had a cohesive experience the way they do it in um, Sleeping Gods and the way I did it in Aftermath is by having something that is cohesive that you're working on, like like your characters and your ship in Sleeping Gods. And in, um, in the case of Aftermath, you have this colony. So the colony is your constant. And, you know, you're constantly managing your colony and, and all of its needs and everything. Meanwhile, you're experiencing the story in all these different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, so I, I tried both with my game. Uh-huh. Uh, the original mm-hmm. idea was, hey, I want players to be able to go anywhere, do whatever they want, interact, and, and it doesn't matter which order you do different things. But what I ran into was a leveling issue because you could easily wind up in a place where you really didn't belong yet and just get wrecked, or you could yeah. wind up in a place a little bit out of order and you're just unbeatable, and so the game's not super fun because it's not a challenge. You're just walking through the the different battles and things like that. And so how do you handle that in making sure players are still having a fun experience in an open-world situation? Like, How do you handle the leveling? How do you handle the power-ups and the power gains and and things like that? So the leveling um, is easier to do in a linear game because you can just have it ramp up at this, you know, at a constant pace, right? Um, It's much harder when you're having a sandboxy experience um, and I find, I, I believe that my, my two that I've done with the sandboxy elements, I didn't have much of much leveling going on there. Um, I relied more on, um, the players, uh, themselves becoming better at the game rather than their characters becoming, you know, you know, better because of they, they have better gear. I think the colony really helped me in aftermath with that. The colony really helped because it allowed um, it, it, it allows you to sort of uh, managing the colony gets more difficult as the game goes on. So it's its own separate thing that advances on its own, no matter which stories you're experiencing. So maybe something like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you just keep the power level always at one, you know, no matter uh-huh. where you go and, and maybe you get some gear or something like that, it helps you a little bit, but just kind of mm-hmm. limiting the opportunity to level up. Like you're not going to go from level one to 50. Like it's just yeah. always going to be around level five. <laughs> no matter where yeah. you go, it's level five. Uh, I think <laughs> way to do it. video games is a little easier. I played, I think the Witcher uh, does this where no matter where you go, maybe it's not the Witcher. But anyway, in a video game, you can have it where no matter where you go, the enemies level to your level. And so if you go left, they're all going to be level five. And if you go right, they're all going to be level five. And if you go to the other one later, they're going to level up to level 10. And so that's one advantage video games have. And I don't know how you would necessarily do that uh, as a board game, but it's just definitely something to keep in mind. One thing that I've tinkered around with for years, and I'm still captivated by this idea, and I've never actually implemented it in anything that I've shown to the public, but I love the idea of just letting the players decide the challenge level of everything. So, for instance, and and, the, and then have the reward you get based solely on whatever challenge you did. So if you give the players the agency of over every encounter to make it as easy or as, uh, or as hard as they want to make it, what's wrong with that? I think that's a really cool idea. Imagine if you had a, if you said that you, you know, if you gain, do a level one encounter, then you only gain one treasure. If you do a level two encounter, then you'll get two treasure. 
Well, the players are going to want to push it, you know, to try to get more stuff, more rewards. And I think that that would be a cool game where you're always, you know, choosing the challenge level of whatever you're, whatever's happening to you. Yeah, I like that a lot. In the Pokemon world, there are these things called Nuzlocks. I think it's mm-hmm. N-U-Z-L-O-C-K-E. I think, uh-huh. I don't know where that word comes from. But anyway, basically, it's it puts parameters on the game. So, for instance, you can't level up past level 10 before you get to the first gym. Mm-hmm. Or another one, another Nuzlocke type thing might be uh, when a Pokemon dies, it's dead forever. Like, it, it goes away. Like, you can't revive anything, uh, so it's permadeath. Uh, another one might be that whenever you encounter a Pokemon, you have to, you can only you can only capture the first one you encounter. So if you encounter something garbage, well, that's what you got, and then you're gonna have to deal with it. And so it kind of creates almost like a variant way to play the game, and it increases the difficulty, and it makes things a little bit more interesting and complex and challenging. And I was thinking through, okay, for my game, could I just create some variants to say, hey, maybe you, maybe you beat the game, and now you want to do it uh, in a more challenging way? Okay, well, what if there's permadeath, or what if there's these other parameters you can put onto the game that way when you go through it it is more of a challenge or it is different or you're seeing things from different angles and just through some variants and so that's one thing i was thinking through yeah yeah there's all different ways there's all different ways to do this uh one one thing that i've thought about doing is like maybe having you know when when a character gains some sort of thing then you tell them the enemies also gain some sort of cool thing you know what i'm saying so you have an enemy deck that gets stronger uh, and that that's triggered by you getting something, you know? Yeah, I love that. I, I was actually just talking to Mike Kelly from One Stop Co-op Shop recently on the show. And we were talking about this very thing as far as like increasing difficulty. Instead of just saying, OK, now the enemies have five more health and they do five more damage is to give them extra abilities or extra cards or extra effects or, or things like that. That way they're not just stronger, they're different. And they're hitting you from different angles and you're, you can't uh, guess what they're going to do quite as yeah. easily because now there's extra effects or extra cards in their deck or whatever. And that makes the game much more interesting, interesting as opposed to saying, okay, everything now has 10 more health. Like, well, yeah. okay. <laughs> like the game's harder, but it's not, it's not more interesting or necessarily more fun. So that's definitely something to think through. Yeah. There's, you know, there's lots of different ways you can, you can do things like that. And uh, it's, it's always fun thinking about all those different ways. I'm always trying to figure out the the easiest and most intuitive way that anything can be done. I think that's probably all game designers um, start off with complicated ideas and then they try to get them as down to their most um, basic forms and still maintain the, you know, the ever the, the original goal of that mechanic to begin with. Oh yeah. That's definitely the craft that's, mm-hmm. uh, that you have to hone as you, as you grow, as you get better at game game design is you realize how much more you can actually cut and still have the same fun, the same uh, experience. Uh, a second ago though, you mentioned things that you want to do, maybe some things that are coming up next. You don't have to give me any specific details or give away any cool, cool stuff you're working on, but just in general, what are you seeing is coming next with storytelling games, either things that you're excited about personally or things you're seeing other designers or other companies do? Where do we go from here? I want and am working on a um a non-linear uh narrative game that also uses an app but it's non-linear so i've done the linear thing with the app now i want to try the non-linear thing with the app so it's sort of going to be a little bit more um open world a little bit more sandboxy in it and stuff i'm also uh working with this i'm i'm still captivated by the idea of having a team deck um like a a, a, a deck of cards that changes but that all all the characters or all the players in the case of 
if every player is playing a, a character, then all of them are working off the same deck. I think that's, I, I still love that. I think that there's a lot more that can be done in a team deck kind of thing that, uh, that we haven't seen yet. I like the simplicity of it. And I like the shared outcome of if you do something bad, then you put a bad card in the deck and one of your fellow players might suffer the consequences. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, oh, that's a great idea, man. I'm excited just hearing about that. And I, and I know a lot of other people are really excited for what you come up with next. And they can't wait to see kind of where this goes in game six uh, or game five, whatever, whatever number we're up to now in these uh, <laughs> story telling games, these storybook games. And what would you tell people that are looking at these games or playing them? They're like, Oh, I would love to design a storytelling game. I'd love to bring a story, a narrative to life. What would be your, your kind of closing thoughts, encouragement to those designers? Um, I would encourage them to, um, to write, a lot and don't throw any of your writing away and don't discount any of it um, because uh, it's all it's all worth keeping and it's all worth using and you'll you'll find that if you if you do if you write a lot and you keep all your ideas and you keep them organized and stuff you'll find that those those um, those nuggets are in there and they may have been in there all along and I would I would lean into those pretty heavily um, I I would also say I would also tell people that um it is a it is a discipline and you can't i mean it's it's really really hard to write a big narrative game you have to be disciplined you or else you'll just never get it done because it's it's it, it seems to be an insurmountable mountain of writing that needs to be done and inspiration doesn't always come to you and that's why you always write because you are building a you're building a discipline and you want to be able to write on command. You want to be able to create on command and that's your goal and make that part of your goal of game design is always to be working on your designs and stuff so that you, so that you become disciplined so you can design on command that you can write on command and you can do this stuff and you'll execute far more accurately when you do. Does that make sense at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Okay. I, I know sometimes I ramble about this stuff, but, I can't, I can't stress it enough. Learn how to put out a vol volumes of work, because if you ever do become a professional in this industry, it'll be demanded of you. And uh, in order to stay, in order to stay, you know, in order to stay in this industry, you have to be able to produce. And the only way to do that is to build a discipline. I love uh, like, you know, that people that do this all the time, some people have never even been published, but they've designed, you know, tons and tons of games. And I just think that is so admirable what I mean, that they've taken something from start to finish and they've done it and they've done it multiple times. It's just pretty it's a pretty cool discipline. Oh, yeah. Could not agree more, sir. Well, hey, Familiar Tales is uh, in pre-order right now. Where can people find it to pre-order, find out more information? I would recommend people go to our website, platthatgames.com and pre-order it from us. We are offering free shipping. And uh, you also get, um, you know, there's there's a, a that cool little token holder that I was talking about that helps organize your tokens and stuff. Um, so, yeah, you get a good price and, and 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 you get a little a little cool add-on and you get good free shipping. So that's what I recommend. Awesome. Well, Jerry, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. I'm so excited for Familiar Tales and just to see. Uh, what's next so good luck with, with bringing more of these games to life and everything else you got going on right now yeah man i'm hey i'm really excited about this robomon i haven't i mean <laughs> it sounds really cool i love pokemon 
I love the Pokemon RPG uh, video games. I think those are very, very enjoyable and clever. And, um, you know, I think those, uh, I think having a board game kind of experience similar to that would be really, really cool. Yeah, I definitely agree. And uh, like I said, hopefully I can put it together and, and it comes out the way I, if, if it comes out as good as it is in my head, then I'll be doing pretty well. But uh, that's always a challenge, right? Getting it out of your brain and onto the table for other people to enjoy. And so, yeah, it's been a lot of work. Like I said, a year and a half going on two years now. But um, man, it's been a lot of fun to, uh, to put together. It's the game. It, it's for me. Honestly, it's the game I wish existed. And I'm hoping there's a lot of other people that uh, will enjoy it as well. There you go. You just have to have faith that you're not alone. And I'm, I can guarantee you, you're not alone on this on, on this one. It's a good idea. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?